Hey there! Welcome to season two of the My Little Eater podcast. I cannot even believe that we are already here. We have already gone through one whole season of episodes, which is crazy. Feels like it's just flown by. If you're new here, welcome. My name is Edwina Kennedy. I am a registered pediatric dietitian, and basically the purpose of this podcast is for me to give out all of my best tips and tricks and strategies to help you feel more confident as a parent feeding your baby and toddler. So yes, we go into the nitty gritty of nutrition, but we talk a lot about how to actually feed babies and toddlers here. And we bring in some pretty awesome guests to provide some insight, not just on the topic of feeding, but also to kind of cover some parenting topics that a lot of you want to hear about. So I'm always open to your reviews and open to your feedback and we've got a great lineup for you in season two based on a lot of the feedback and the reviews that I got from season one so you're gonna love it I promise you you will so let's start off with today's episode which is actually an interview with the one and only Holly Choi from Safe Beginnings guys this episode is exactly for you if you are kind of worried or wanting to be extra prepared about the safety of your baby or your toddler when they're eating. Of course, we all are pretty, you know, invested in the safety aspect of feeding. But if you're, you know, you're worried, especially um, kind of feeling a little uneasy, maybe you've read a few things online, but you still don't feel like you really have the gist of it, you don't feel that confident, and you've got some questions around it, I promise you this episode is going to answer a lot of those questions. I've asked Holly some of the most common questions that I've gotten from parents just like you, and God, she gives amazing answers. I actually learned so much about this topic, and I already thought I knew quite a bit on it, so I am sure you're going to enjoy this and find this helpful. So without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Holly. Thank you so much for having me. I am super excited to have you here. I've seen a lot of your work on Instagram, and I know you kind of cover a lot of different areas when it comes to safety, like car seat safety and things like that, which I know I could have used a lot more information when I had my boys when they were a lot younger anyway. So I know this is going to be super helpful for all of my listeners, but I thought maybe we could start with just a little bit of a, a more detailed introduction from you. So if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to getting to where you are today, that would be amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. So my name is Holly Choi. I am the co-owner of Safe Beginnings First Aid. The other half of Safe Beginnings First Aid is actually my sister, Jill. And when I was pregnant with my first in 2015, I had a moment of realization that my software job was not working for me and it required that I travel all around the country, um, sometimes for weeks at a time. And I really didn't want that to be my experience when my daughter was a year old that I would be away for weeks at a time. And my sister had already been quite successful as a first aid instructor, but knew that she could grow her business too. And she asked me if it was something I would be interested in given that my software job was actually mostly focused around software training. So she knew that I had some talent as a teacher and she invited me on board. So I used that year of maternity leave to upskill myself and I became a certified first aid instructor. And I also became a certified child passenger safety technician, which is um, 
we often refer to ourselves as car seat techs, but it's um, a national certification as well. Um, and now I uh, am also a member of the International Association for Child Safety, which is the worldwide child-proofing organization. But I've basically spent the last five years totally engrossed in child safety, and I absolutely love it. I am so passionate about it, and I'm so grateful that my sister um, asked me to do this with her because it's not something I would have seen myself doing before. Oh my God, that's like a dream team, like you and your sister working together. I mean, as long as you guys get along. Yeah. <laughs> cool as we do. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. Okay, perfect. So what I want to kind of dive right into is a lot of the common questions I get from parents um, that follow me. When it comes to safety, uh, a lot of it is obviously around eating and introducing solids because that's what I teach on the daily. And I always, of course, stress the importance of being very safe. Whether you're starting with purees, whether you're doing baby led weaning, it does not matter. The rules around safety are the exact same. And usually when people are like, okay, like, so tell me then what do I have to do? Like what foods do I have to modify? You know, thinking that's kind of the main thing that they have to be concerned about. But I know that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of nuances around, you know, safety when it comes to positioning when you're eating, the environment that you want to kind of set up for your child when they're eating that keeps everything safe and low risk. So could you kind of give us a little bit of information around how you might want to think about setting up mealtimes in just the safest way possible? Yeah, so I'm sure we all had the experience where our parents would chase us around the house saying, don't run with food in your mouth. <laughs> and that's always the main one, right? We want to make sure that children are seated and upright when they're eating. But another one that's really important that I find a lot of people don't consider is how important it is for a child to be alert when they're eating. So at the back of our throat, we all have something called the epiglottis. And that is the thing in your body that effectively decides whether you're currently breathing or eating or drinking. And when we're not fully alert as humans, the epiglottis cannot make that decision reliably. And that's where we'll start to see a lot more gagging and choking episodes is when people aren't alert. So for people that have taken a first aid course in the past, you'll often hear, you know, if someone's had a seizure or if someone has fainted, don't give them food or drink by mouth. Mm -hmm. And it's just that when people aren't fully alert, we can't rely on them to not have that hazard. So I see so many cute photos online of babies, you know, dropping their heads into their meal <laughs> at the table, yeah. which is cute. And I totally get why people want to record that. But at the same time, that is where I draw the line on mealtime being over. So if you notice that a child is falling asleep into their meal, then they're not alert enough to be eating anymore. And that's a huge one for me. Wow. Okay. That's a very good tip. I haven't considered that really before. Usually when I give recommendations for when to offer meals, you know, how to set up your mealtime schedule, I, you know, we know a lot of babies are napping like morning and evening or, or not evening, <laughs> afternoon. And so I will usually say, you know, within half an hour after waking, you know, you can put them in the high chair and, and offer mealtime, assuming that they're hungry at that time. But is that an okay guideline? Like, is there a specific time you should wait or is it really just looking at their cues? And it's just really about how perky they are. And I mean, in reality, when I go to get my daughter from her crib, she's often jumping up and, and grabbing for me. So 
In those cases, yeah, after they've woken up from a nap, they're usually alert enough. It's that time that we are worried that they're actually going to fall asleep in their meal that we don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. My other main thing that I always put out there, and I'm sure you're a stickler for this too, is just try to avoid things that are round and easily poppable into the mouth without modifying them, right? So things like a whole blueberry or a whole grape naturally are going to be very close to the size of a child's airway, but also because of their shape, the texture of the skin of those fruits, it makes them very easy to become lodged. And because they have just enough give to them or elasticity in them, they can also conform to the size of the airway. So foods do tend to be more of a choking hazard compared to objects in general, just because they have that ability to conform. So that's where that food prep is a huge piece. Oh my gosh. Okay. So this is, uh, I just posted about choking hazards with round and hard foods yesterday on Instagram. (laughs) And then I got a flood of messages that, which is very normal, um, asking, you know, well, how come that food is considered a choking hazard, but not that food? So one example a mom gave me was, well, how come blueberries, whole blueberries are a choking hazard, but cooked peas are not? Or um, the other one that I even, to be honest, I can't really give an answer, like cooked chickpeas. I know that when I've looked, you know, at the research and I've tried to look at the list, like how does CDC and how do all these organizations compile the list of choking hazards? Generally speaking, it's statistically based, you know, it's kind of reported. These are the like the types of foods that are most commonly choked on. And then they've kind of compiled the data. Maybe they've extrapolated from there to include other foods that are similar, but I never really heard that before is like about it conforming to the size and shape of the airway. So that probably plays a lot into it, right? Like as to why certain ones that are absolutely. Yeah. And you know, the thing about a cooked pea, so the typical small child's airway is roughly the size of a grape, which is about 16 millimeters. And the small child's airway isn't just um, shaped like a circle per se, it's kind of funnel shaped, but that narrowest piece is about the size of a grape. And so when we're thinking about preparing food, we know that at a minimum, we wanna cut grapes in half and the general recommendation is to ideally quarter them. Mm -hmm. But if you think of half a grape and you think of a cooked pea, those are huge, hugely different sizes. (laughs) So. Um, A cooked pea is really very low risk. One of the first foods that I fed my first daughter um, five years ago was cooked peas, but just, you know, just steamed and lightly mashed with a fork, Mm -hmm. right? But I had absolutely zero concern because I had that in my mind, what a grape was, what half a grape was, Mm -hmm. and that that pea was still significantly smaller than that. Okay. Very good tip. So use a full size grape as a reference point, but obviously still follow the guidelines where you're quartering. Even if you think, I mean, generally speaking, I'm like, be better safe than sorry. Right. So even if you think, oh, it's smaller, I don't need to quarter it. Just go ahead and quarter it. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And well, and I always say to parents, if you think of half a grape, you could have a perfectly round grape. And if you cut it in half, it would still be a circle. Mm -hmm. So the guideline that I like to provide is if we are at least cutting things in half, if you think of a grape or you think of a hot dog, right? Mm -hmm. If that were to flip back there without getting chewed, air could clear the other side of the object. Mm -hmm. And that allows them to turn on the cough and then gag the object up. That's what we're trying to do. 
Makes total sense. Okay, that's really great clarification. The other question I have for you is, are there any considerations that we need to make when it comes to A, choosing a high chair and B, like seating them in the high chair? Um, I know for me, I typically say, well, don't, don't feed them in a reclining position if your high chair does that. But is there anything else that you would suggest? For high chairs? Yeah, so depending on where you live, uh, a lot of places, Canada, for example, has regulations on products. So as long as you are purchasing a high chair that is fairly new, that's the most important thing because sometimes we pull things out of the attic and they might be 30 years old and I get that. Um, but we want to make sure that they do meet current regulations. So you can check that um, both the Consumer Product Safety Commission in the US and Health Canada, if you're in North America, at least have websites where you can look up a particular high chair, you can just type in a brand. So for example, Graco, Evenflow, Fisher Price, whatever it happens that you pull out, you can put it into this database and it will tell you if there was ever a recall. Um, so that's a great way to check. And they also both list on those websites, both the Health Canada website and the Consumer Product Safety Commission, what the current standards are for the manufacturers making them. So if you have someone who's curious, like maybe I'll build my own high chair, cool, but <laughs> check what those standards are. My main piece of advice around high chairs and a concern I hear from parents all the time is I'm so concerned about my baby choking or my toddler choking that I am afraid to do up the buckles because what if I do up the buckles and they choke and it takes me so long to get them out that I don't have time to react. The reality around the choking maneuvers is that they are so effective on small children. And I know that um, if uh, for anyone listening, if you're ever in a baby led weaning group on Facebook and places like that, you'll often see people will do polls of, hey, have you ever actually had to do a choking maneuver? And there's a lot of people who do say yes, but when that gets sort of broken down into, okay, did you just have to do back blows or did you actually end up having to do chest compressions? Most people will tell you that it is one to two back blows and that object was out. So in reality, we have about roughly 30 to 60 seconds we can expect consciousness in children when they're truly choking. So I'm not talking about gagging, but actually fully choking, no sound, pale. In those situations, that is a lot of time. It might, worst case scenario, you're freaking out, your hands are shaking. It might take you 15 seconds to get your kid out of the high chair if you're really worked up. That's totally fine. But the amount of time it takes to do that maneuver is close to about five seconds. So you have a lot of time. Um, and that's really what I like to, to drill home to parents is, you know, it's, it's scary in the moment, um, but things do happen in slow motion. You've got enough time to react. Please use the straps. We are way more likely to have children injured and receiving head injuries from falling out of a high chair than we are to have them choke if we're preparing their food properly. Okay, everybody, did you just hear that? <laughs> so that's very good. I hope that that also makes you feel a little bit better that like you have the time to react. I know that I, I've heard that question too, you're right. And, and I think in the moment, because we're panicking and scared, it feels like a million years have passed and we can't waste like a millisecond, which obviously we don't want to waste any time, but you have the time to react. So that's really, really good to know. I actually want to ask you uh, 
about a question like what's going to happen or what do you recommend we do if we're solo parenting and our baby chokes? I recently had like a big kind of discussion inside of my clients only Facebook group about this situation. And I asked, what's your number one fear? you know, about anything in life, but a lot of people are going to talk about parenting. And that's what they brought up actually is like, if I'm home alone with my child and I'm feeding them, how am I supposed to do all this if I'm on my own? Um, And not only that, part B is what happens if I choke? I mean, I don't know if that's like, if there's a protocol or anything we can do to help prepare ourselves. (laughs) Okay. So here's the thing is if we know that we have a defined period of time that someone's going to be conscious, we have to make a decision between am I phoning 911 or am I reacting? So if it is just you and the child, please react. Because again, those maneuvers are so effective that the likelihood is in like 99% of those cases, we're going to pop the object out and then we'll be okay. And then we can go get medical attention afterward but we just want to give the child an airway. So we're often, you know, struggling with, do I do that thing? Do I make that phone call? If you feel that you have to make the phone call and that you won't be okay if you don't make it, if you can shout at Siri, I'm going to try not to set my phone off when I do this, but you know, something like, Hey, can, can you phone 911 and shout at Siri or Alexa or whoever you've got helping you in the house? If you've got an assistant like that, do that. But otherwise, just do the maneuver. It is so, so effective. And then you can get the attention after. If you've got someone else, there is zero harm in making a 911 phone call because ultimately, at the end of the day, if someone has a choking maneuver done on them, we should be getting them checked out. It's not a super likely situation, but it is possible for anyone, whether they're an infant or an adult, to have internal injury or internal bleeding just because the maneuvers are quite aggressive and we do want to get people checked out. So it doesn't have to be that second, but it does need to be that day. So if someone phones 911, don't feel bad if an ambulance shows up, they still need to get checked out. If you're by yourself and you do the maneuver and it's out, you can either phone 911 if you're not comfortable driving or get them medical attention after. Right. So your second question, I guess, was what if I (laughs) by myself? Okay, so the concept of helping yourself when you're home alone and choking or solo parenting and your child can't help you or doesn't know how to help you or isn't big enough to help you is to try to mimic the maneuver someone would do on you if you had help. So in the case of a non-pregnant adult, that would be using the back of a chair, ideally. So the chair would need to be firm. So ideally wood, metal, or plastic. You don't want to use like a sofa or anything like that. And uh, we want something fairly thin. If you imagine the arm of a couch that would be quite large and you would just be hitting yourself in the abdomen with it. So you need it to be quite thin so it can have a bit of a dig to it. And you would line that edge of the chair right up just above your belly button. And then you're really dropping your entire body weight onto the edge of the chair. And I know that does not sound fun at all, 
but it is so effective. It almost perfectly mimics the maneuver of an abdominal thrust because that chair digs in the tissue and pushes up on your lungs. It is very, very effective. I've actually taught some courses where I've had some family members start to shoot glares at each other across the room. And I said, is everything okay? And they said, my husband does that all the time. We go to restaurants, he chokes on stuff. He just gets up, throws himself on the chair and sits back down and continues his meal. So <laughs> if that's the way you're living your life, I need you to reassess it. But um, in terms of how effective it is, there's people who casually do that. So <laughs> it works. Wow. Okay. There you go. And it's yeah. like, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was thinking in the moment, I was like, ow, that would hurt. But then I was like, oh yeah, but you'd be choking. So <laughs> obviously you're not going to care. Oh my God. That's yeah. what I so know. The other issue would be if someone's pregnant, then we can't do that maneuver, right? So if you're, this is, this is going to sound absolutely insane and horrible. And I hope none of you have to do this, but we, this is the official first aid advice and we have not come up with anything better. Um, but what you would do when you're pregnant is you would try to, instead of hitting yourself in the abdomen, you're trying to hit yourself in the chest and try to squeeze your lungs at chest level and the way that you would do that by yourself is really by taking a run at a kitchen counter, bathroom counter, something like that, and hitting yourself in the chest. And it's, again, if you're trying to visualize that, it's not the corner, <laughs> it's the edge. It is a horrible thing to do to yourself. But um, in all of my classes, I share with my students that I have actually met someone that did that. I demonstrated the maneuver back in 2017 and had a woman put her hand up and tell the whole class, she did that when she was pregnant and I never thought I would meet someone, especially so early into my career as a first aid instructor. But what I took away from it is if you're desperate, you can do these things. Mm -hmm. um, the good news is that they do work. Um, people have survived to talk about it, but ideally we're preventing these things. So prepping your food is super important as an adult too. consider what your airway size is. It's roughly um, about 21 to 27 millimeters for the Canadians listening. That's the size of a Timbit <laughs> for the Americans listening. That's the size of a two bite brownie, um, which is literally why they're called two bite brownies. So um, always think about that as your airway size and try to cut your food at least half that size so that we don't have to do maneuvers like that. Yeah. Don't do what I do and eat steak really quickly and not chew it really well. Cause <laughs> I've even had many incidents like that where I'm like, Oh my God, like I definitely should have chewed that more. And, uh, thankfully haven't had to run into the side of a counter or chair, but you know, Adina, I don't know if you know this, but that is the leading choking hazard for an adult is steak. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, I don't want to get too off topic, but just last summer, the same thing happened to my sister when we were away and I lost my mind and started reacting and she ended up getting it out before I did anything. But yeah, it's, it's, I've seen it happen now a few times with me and with my sister. So I can believe that <laughs> for sure. So anyway, I mean, I don't want to scare anybody on here. I think the whole point here is that we're, we're letting you guys know that this stuff works. And I would say, I mean, Holly, I don't know what advice you have for parents out there, but my big thing is I really want to give parents confidence when they're feeding and confidence when they're parenting in general. So when we talk about how can we build our confidence around, around feeding and overcoming fear with choking, I mean, for me, I'm always like, educate yourself, find a course, 
um, watch some videos and, and practice. But I mean, do you have any tangible tips or anything that we could add on to that to help parents feel a bit more confident around this topic? Yeah, I do really strongly agree that the best way to calm yourself is to know what to do in worst case scenarios. And there's always a bit of anxiety when you're taking a class because you don't like to think about those scenarios. But if you know how to react and you've practiced, then you are more likely to have that muscle memory down the road when you need it. So it is really important to do that. The other thing I like to put out there is always remember that if a child is making sounds that they still have an airway. Mm -hmm. And this might sound a little cold hearted, but um, I actually, even though I, I may come across as super confident and I am a first aid instructor and I'm constantly on top of my skills, I am a very anxious person. And I had so much fear around starting solids. It's real. And for me, I really had to reprogram my brain to if my daughter is making sound, she still has an airway. And in those moments that they're gagging, really just encouraging them to cough. Mm -hmm. It is so hard, but knowing that they're making sound equals that they have an airway is the most calming and important thing. It's gotten to the point that when I hear my children crying, my brain's reaction and my emotional reaction is their breathing. <laughs> That's amazing. Such good advice. And it's true. I think a lot of people will, you know, get really scared when they see a gag. And sometimes the reactions too can kind of throw off a baby or make them a little bit more fearful around mealtime. So I'm always like, practice your reaction. You know, if you, first of all, understand the difference between the gag and the choke, understand when it's okay. And like you said, when you hear those sounds, you know, train yourself, tell yourself, they're safe. They're good. They're making noise. Like that's wonderful. And like talk them through it, encourage them to, like you said, cough, encourage them to get the food out. You know, you can even say like, good job. Like you're doing so good. And I find that helps calm you more than anything as well. Just to be like, oh, this is a good thing. Like, look at them go. Their body is so responsive and so reactive. And we have to always remember that this is like a built-in protective mechanism. It's innate. It's natural. They don't have to be taught how to do this. And they're just so skilled at getting that food out. So the big thing is, is we just don't want to hold them back when, I mean, I think when our fear sometimes becomes overwhelming, which I know is very, very normal, but sometimes we can hold them back because we're afraid to let them practice and, and to gag and to really figure out how it all works. So yeah, preparing yourself as much as possible, talking to other moms, asking about experiences, and just truly having the confidence to know that, look, I know what to do. I've hopefully taken a course or I've, you know, gone to a seminar or something like that. And the reaction time is quick. I can do it. And these work, these things work. So all of the stuff that you have told us today, I think are really helpful and really help uh, with that mindset piece as well. So I guess to end this whole uh, episode up, can you maybe let us know about some of the resources that you offer and how we can learn more about what you do and, and get some help ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. So we offer um, online classes currently in two formats. Um, I am teaching over live webinar a few times per month and I try to stagger them so that it would work for both Pacific and Eastern time zones, depending on where you are in the world. 
And we also have an at your own pace online course, which is video based um, so that if you wanted to watch it in the middle of the night, um, you totally could. <laughs> and I've actually had a lot of feedback that sometimes people wake up and they're having an anxious moment about, oh my goodness, my child's gonna be six months tomorrow and I just wanna learn. So there is that, if you need that immediate, I can't wait another second, we've got an at your own pace. If you happen to live in British Columbia, uh, which is not going to be everyone for sure, but uh, we do teach in person as well. But all of the information is on our website, which is safebeginnings.ca. And um, you can follow along on Instagram. I talk about choking and choking hazards all the time on my Instagram, which is just at safebeginnings. So amazing. Okay, thank you so much for all of your information and for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me.